think I'm on? I am on. All right. Had me nervous before. All right. So as I begin, I have to mess with Eric. I'm sorry. If you remember last week, I was the uh, pig and narc <laughs> that he referred to when he said, yeah, I probably shouldn't be saying pig and narc since one is leading worship. <laughs> then on top of that, today before I even start, he comes back there and gives me a rebuke. I am going to be going over fathers today, so I guess it is right. Comes back with a little, uh, little hip-hop, a little line from back in the day, and is upset with me that my son has no idea what he is talking about. So, Listen. Get him on new school first, then we'll, then we'll bring him to old school. <laughs> I love the epistles. Um, the beauty of the epistles is their mixture of orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And if you're unfamiliar with orthodoxy and orthopraxy, orthodoxy is correct thinking. Orthopraxy is what to do in light of that correct thinking. It's actually doing. So in the beginning of the epistles, the authors generally provide the reader with what they are to believe about God. This is then typically followed by how the reader is to live in response to who God is and what he has done. So if you remember, Pastor Eric told us that the overall theme of the book of Colossians is what? Let's see, he was paying attention from the very beginning. Don't feel bad. I, I took a picture of it. This way I would remember it. So here is our overall theme again. Christ is Lord over all creation, including the invisible realm. He has secured redemption for his people, enabling them to participate with him in his death, resurrection, and fullness. From this central theme, the book of Colossians guides our orthodoxy by detailing what God has done on the believer's behalf through Christ. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. God the Father in Christ has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1, 21 and 22. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, Doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So in light of what Christ has done, what should be the believer's response? And notice the question isn't, what should one do to receive or secure these blessings? The question is, since believers have received these blessings through Christ, how now shall we live? Pastor Daniel answered this question two weeks ago as he expounded on Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17. In these verses, we were reminded to put to death what is earthly and to put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another and, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other 
as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This concept of love will be a key element in our discussion today. As we continue this series in Colossians over the next several weeks, we're going to examine how the gospel informs our relationships. We'll be considering the roles of fathers and husbands, wives, mothers, parents, children, and slaves, masters over the next few weeks. With that said, before we get into the sermon, I want to preface our upcoming topic of husbands and fathers with this statement, I don't do either one perfectly. I am not the perfect husband. I am not the perfect father, and I hope that's not the reason why I was brought up here, and I hope I'm not giving that impression that I am the perfect husband or the perfect father. And if you have any questions, you can ask Tara afterwards, because she will attest to that. In my eyes, I have a lot of improving to do when it comes to being a husband and a father, and this text exposes that. Second, I know we have men in the audience of a variety of ages who have possibly been married for 50 plus years. Some are sitting right in front of me. (laughs) And may at this point have great-grandchildren or great-great-grandchildren. With that said, Dr. Joe, I know you've done more by mistake than I've done on purpose when it comes to being a husband or a father. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Yet I believe these words from Paul are useful for everyone listening. For those who have been married for a long time or who have great-grandchildren, it is always good to be reminded of what God calls us to be. For the rest of us, especially us younger men, it instructs us either of how we can best serve our households or for everybody else and our women here, what those in our households with us should be expecting from us. So what is a husband called to do when it comes to his wife. Unfortunately, I believe for way too long we've answered this question by applying the wrong verse, and that's why I had the whole section up there. Instead of answering this specific question with verse 19, where Paul specifically addresses husbands, we've eisegeted our answer from verse 18, where Paul is speaking to wives. Now, unlike Eric that gave you all these ologies, which some of them you probably had no idea what they were, I'm going to explain what eisegesis is. So typically when it comes to a text, we are supposed to exegete that text. We're supposed to read it, look at the context, and draw out from that what the author is saying to us. Typically what we do, though, is we come with our presuppositions and what we like, and then go into the text, and from our presuppositions, form our opinion of what the text is saying. And I believe for far too long, then, that is what we have done when it comes to our concept of being a husband. We observe the words, wives, submit to your husbands, and deduce that it was our duty to make sure that our wives submitted to us. But the text doesn't say, husbands, make your wives submit to you. It just says, wives, submit to your husbands. So now looking at verse 19, we receive our answer as to what a husband is supposed to do in relation to his wife. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Husbands, 
Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And if you're hard-headed like me and you need that threefold repetition, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, as we look at the text again, notice what it doesn't add. Husbands, love your wives as long as she submits to you. Doesn't say that, right? Nor does it say, husbands, love your wives as long as she is pleasing to you. It is simply, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. In some translations, the words do not be harsh are translated as and do not be embittered against them. Thomas Schreiner notes that bitterness contradicts love for it thinks selfishly and exclusively of one's own interests and hurts. A husband is to remember that he is not loving his wife for his own benefit, but he is to love her for her benefit. So what does this love that we're speaking about look like? Well, to get this answer, we're going to have to examine two other portions of Scripture that deal with husbands and their relationship with their wives. And before we do that, I'm going to have to take a squig of water if you don't mind. So our first text is Ephesians 5, 22 through 20, or 33. And in Ephesians 5, we observe that husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and they're to love their wives as their own bodies. A husband is to nourish and cherish his wife, encourage her in her walk with Christ so that she grows in Christ and conforms more and more to his image. In the same way that he would care for himself physically and spiritually, the husband is to do the same for his wife since they are one flesh. He is to love her as he loves himself and nourish her and cherish her as he would himself. Now, as we look at 1 Peter 3, 7, we see that the husband is to live with his wife in an understanding way and show honor to her as the weaker vessel. The word here used for weaker in the classical Greek does not denote moral, spiritual, or mental weakness, but it is used in a physical sense. The fact that this does not mean moral, spiritual, or mental weakness is further proven by the rest of the verse where it says that wives are heirs with you in the grace of life. We can also observe this equality of male and female in Galatians 3, 28 and 29, which tells us there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So some scholars also note that the word used in 1 Peter 3, 7 could also be used to refer to the authority given to the husband in the husband-wife relationship. So I might get myself in trouble here with the ladies. Fellas, make sure you have a clear exit for me when it's time to leave. <clears throat> in the previous text, we just examined Ephesians 5. This concept of husbands having authority was noted. 
It says in verse 23 that the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. The term head actually means to have authority over. And in the verses that follow, verse 23, we see how Christ has authority over and governs his church. Time is shrine here. I'm going to use him again as well in explaining the type of authority that the husband is to have in the husband-wife relationship because we do not want to confuse this authority. I like what he says here. He says, husbands have authority over wives, but this authority is worked out in terms of responsibility instead of privilege. The authority is a servant model of authority, similar to Christ's self-giving for the church. Christ's self-giving on the cross is the paradigm for husbands. Their love for their wives is to have the same quality of self-giving and sacrifice as Christ's love for the church. So this does not refer to physical strength and the authority that the man has, which I believe it does. It shows us that the husband is not to use the authority he's been given or use his physical strength as a means to take advantage of his wife. But instead, he is to show deference to his wife and not lord his strength over her or his authority over her. Thus, the issue that I brought up before and the danger of looking at what a husband is supposed to be and do from the lens of wives being submissive. When we look at our role from that mindset, we fail to honor our wives and instead lord our strength and authority over them. Because unfortunately, our intent at that point is to make them submit instead of loving them as we are called to do. So husbands, what we need to be doing instead is living with our wives in an understanding way, spending time with her, conversing with her, that we might truly know her so that we can love her in a way that is going to result in her flourishing physically, morally, and spiritually. For years, this is something that I did not do. What I did instead was found my favorite theologian and what particular book he had written on marriage and then attempt to employ that in my own. And here's the problem with that. And I'm not discouraging folks from reading books. Please don't get me wrong. Um, but that particular theologian is not my wife. Nor is his wife, my wife. So what might work for him and his wife might not necessarily work for me and my wife. So although there might be applications within that book that might be useful, nothing is going to be actually sitting down with my wife and talking with her, praying with her, and loving her. Nothing. Nothing is going to be giving her a listening ear. Nothing is going to be nourishing her and cherishing her as I am called to do. Nothing. One of the things that I said in the back when I was asked for a brief synopsis about what I'm going over today, um, it amazes me how as we look at the New Testament, and I think all the verses that I gave you might have been 15 in total, how uh, in 15 verses we can write volumes of books and then probably spend more time in the book than actually spending time with the person that we were called to love. And for far too long, that is what I did. That's why I need to know my wife more and more. So husbands, I think our call is very simple. 
Something very simple, but yet, at the same time, something very hard. We're just called to love our wives and not be harsh with them. Husbands, that's what I encourage you to do. So if you are expecting some great theological truths coming from that, and you're disappointed, read 1 Corinthians 13 where it talks about love, because love is a great theological truth. Love your wife. Transitioning now to fathers. When Paul addresses fathers in verse 21, he shows them what to do. How? By advising them what not to do. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. The corresponding verse to this is Ephesians 6.4, which says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. As fathers deal with their children, they're not to be harsh or nitpicky, constantly berating their children for every mistake that they make or for failing to adhere to a certain standard. The father is not to continually admonish his children for everything that they fail to do. And now I'm going to have to steal a line from Eric here. So when it comes to raising our children, we cannot have the same theology as the group, the police. Our mindset should not be every breath you take, every move you make, every bond you break, every step you take, I'll be watching you. (laughs) And then be prepared to obviously swing down and bring forth that harsh discipline that I think you need. And again, confession time, that was my mistake for so long. You know, I think as parents, a lot of times we get into this mindset that we don't want to have our children make the same mistakes that we did. And then when we see them going down that path, Superman time, right? It's time to to swoop in and save the day and uh, preach to our children and give them that instruction that they think they need, but we're typically very harsh with it. And instead of instructing them and training them like we should, all we do is preach to them, and yet we wonder why they turn us off. That is why they turn us off. Fathers instead are to train and teach their children in the Lord so that they might come to know Jesus. That's your job. Our job is to train and teach our children in the Lord so that they might come to know Jesus Christ as Lord. The father's job is to not deal with behavior, continually punishing his children and admonishing them for every rule that they break. Instead, his job is to deal with the heart of his children, nurturing them in the word of God that they might recognize their own sinfulness, repent, and come to Christ. That's our goal. If all I'm doing is disciplining my children to the point that I'm the only one noticing their sin, and I'm instructing them so that they can see their sin and then repent, I am doing something wrong. And again, for so long, and I don't know if it's my military background, I won't blame it on that. Some of you heard my testimony yesterday in the kind of environment that I grew up in, but I'm a rules guy. So trying to break out of that mold of being a rules guy is very difficult for me. Um, Some of you guys that were in the military, I remember we used to have a 
song where it said, just the other day I heard a drill sergeant say, it's my way or the highway. And essentially for so long, that was my philosophy. No, that's not my job. My job is to instruct my children in the Lord that they might come to know him. So after examining these roles that the husband and father are called to fulfill, how do we apply these things? So I'm essentially closing. This is it. These were simple texts that I think we make far too complex. So here's my application. Number one, put on love. Again, in Colossians 3.14, it tells us that love binds everything together in perfect harmony. When we put on love, we're able to exhibit compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience with our wives and children. We are also able to bear with them and forgive them and then be a model of that as well. As husbands and fathers, we are called to love, so we must put on love so that we are able to accomplish that. And we do it not out of a sense of duty, but because we want to nourish and cherish or teach or train those under our care. It is the desire of our heart. Second, you must remember that the authority given to the husband father doesn't mean you are privileged, but that you have a responsibility. It's not about what your family can do for you, but what you can do for your family. You are to serve them, not use them, so that only you are the one that flourishes. Your job is to make sure that they flourish. Third, husbands and fathers are called to live unselfishly. You're not called to look after your own interests, but you are called to look after the interests of your wife and children. And I don't think that needs any further explanation. Live unselfishly. Fourth, you must remember that you are the chief discipler in the home. Not the chief differ, uh, giver of discipline, but the chief discipler. So this does not mean that you exert your authority to be obeyed, but that you cherish your wife and nourish her with the word, and that you train and teach the word to your children. In nourishing your wife with the word, you help her flourish and become more and more like Christ. In teaching and training your children, you are bringing the gospel to them so that they might come to know Jesus, if that is God's will, and upon knowing him, becoming more and more like him. Not like you, but like Jesus. Fifth, probably the most important point. None of this can be done without Christ. We need to be praying daily that Christ would give us the desire and strengthen us to love our wives and children as we should. If we are to love as Christ loves, we cannot do that in our own strength. Only Christ can empower us to do that. So may you look to him as you look to love your wife and train your children. Lastly, and again a very important one, attempting to fulfill your role as husband and father does 
not safe. So you loving your wife and nourishing her as you should or teaching and training your children will not save them. So what are you saying? Don't do it? No. (laughs) Saying it is something that God can use to save, but unless his spirit indwells an individual and softens their heart for them to come to Christ, they will not come to Christ. So with that said, your job is to be faithful and do that which God has called you to do. And then trust that he is faithful to do the rest. That's your job, husbands. Your job is to love your wives, train and teach your children. And may God give us the strength to do that. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would just ponder these words seriously. Um, For far too long, many of us have have looked at these verses with the wrong intentions, uh, with the wrong motives, and unfortunately have misapplied them, um, causing great harm to our families. We repent, and Father, we pray that you would strengthen us and direct us, help us to love our wives as we are called to do, and help us to train and instruct our children as we are called to do. Um, As that's done, uh, may you use that for your means. Um, For our, our children that might not know you, may you use it to bring them to Christ. May you also use it to help our wives grow more and more like Christ. And as that's done, Lord, we pray that as husbands, we would not look for the glory, but that we would solely give you the glory and you alone. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.